0: Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us out today. We thank you for the beautiful weather outside and for the opportunity to to study from your word. And I pray that as we go through the presentation this afternoon, the message would be clear and we would have an understanding of the prophetic message you've given us for this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, our message today is entitled Confusion on Prophecy. Just... A brief reminder for those of you who have been coming, I've been mentioning that I do have a book coming out on the book of Daniel entitled Daniel, Practical Living in the Judgment Hour. It's going to be put out by Remnant Publications and it should be available in the next few weeks. So if you're interested in a verse-by-verse commentary with practical applications on the book of Daniel, I encourage you to check that out. It will be coming out very soon. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about Confusion on prophecy here, and there's a variety of topics that we're going to cover. Um, Some recent date-setting trends have emerged. Now, date-setting is actually not a new item in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There are people who like to set dates for the Sunday Law or the close of probation or even for the Second Coming, despite the counsel we've been given against doing so. And this has happened again recently. There were some who were pointing to March or April of this year. They were saying so last October. Now they've revised that to June 21. That's only three days away. So um, as of today, those of you who listen to this recording later will see. Um, Others are claiming November 9 of this year, November 9, 2019. We're going to get into the details of those who are saying these things and why they're saying it. These are all a violation of the plainest statements from Ellen White on time setting. And it's amazing to me that people continue to try setting dates, and they're so convinced that they're right this time, and then these dates come and go. Other issues that we'll talk about include the so-called 2520 prophecy, and I put that in quotation marks because it's not really a prophecy. We're going to look at advocacy of feast-keeping and lunar Sabbath. We're going to look at those who try to do a reapplication of the seven trumpets into the future, and we're going to look a little bit at the issue of Daniel 11. Some believe that the end of Daniel 11 is somehow a Middle East conflict that will lead to the close of probation. Now, I will mention here that the Daniel 11 issue is not um, to the degree that some of the other issues are that we're talking about. Now, we're going to talk about some concurrent confusion on October 17, 2018, David Gates released a video on YouTube entitled, Even at the Door. Um, As of this morning, this video has over 261,000 views. It had 200,000 views probably within one to two months, so it went viral. Lots of seventh-day Adventists took the opportunity to check out this video that David Gates released. And here are some of the highlights That David Gates put forth in this video. And there's a reason why this video went viral. It wasn't a little video that said, hey, go out and do mission work and be on fire for the Lord. No, it had some pretty explosive claims in the video. And here's what he says, at the 2015 general conference session in San Antonio, the Seventh-day Adventist church voted a change in its belief about the writings of Ellen G. White that constitutes a rejection of her writings. And he says, that the General Conference at least do not consider her writings to be inspired anymore. That's his charge in the video. That's obviously not what I believe, but that's what he says. He promotes an idea of three and a half years from the rejection of the testimony of Jesus. So he says the testimony of Jesus was rejected in July of 2015, so we'll have three and a half years from that point. And he says there's some analogies for this three-and-a-half-year prophecy that he put out. Um, I don't think he calls it a prophecy, but it was. Um, He says there were three-and-a-half years from the death of Jesus to the stoning of Stephen, and that's true. And he also mentions that there's three-and-a-half years from the initial surrounding of Jerusalem to its destruction, and that's also true. But that doesn't have anything to do with what happened in San Antonio in 2015, but he thinks it does. Now, he describes this in further detail. So there's this vote on the change of wording for the spirit of prophecy in July of 2015. Now what's a little bit confusing is he doesn't start his three and a half year timeline in July of 2015. He starts it on September 23 of 2015, which he says was the day of atonement according to the Jewish calendar of that year, which incidentally coincided with Pope Francis coming to the United States. And it was the very next day, September 24 of 2015, that Pope Francis addressed a joint session of Congress. Now, we as Seventh-day Adventists who believe in Bible prophecy would all agree that that was a big deal prophetically when Pope Francis addressed a joint session of Congress. I'm not here to minimize the significance of that. That was a significant prophetic milestone reminding us that what we have always taught as Seventh-day Adventists from Revelation 13 about the first beast and the second beast, namely the Roman church state and, the, and Protestant America, how what we're saying about Revelation 13 is right on the money when we see what happened on September 24 of 2015. But David Gates takes it farther than that um, because we didn't hear anything about a Sunday law in that joint session of Congress. But David Gates claims that Rome invaded America on this date in history. So he says that September 23 to September 24, this is the date that Rome invades America in history. Now, believe it or not, you know this to be true, but many conservative Seventh-day Adventists get caught up in this kind of sensational thinking. You know it's true this is very captivating to consider. Oh, wow, Rome invaded America. We have three and a half years from this point. But again, I'm I'm left scratching my head a little bit if we're saying three and a half years from when testimony of Jesus is rejected, which it wasn't, but then we go two months, two and a half months later before we start the timeline. There's some things that just don't add up. So rather than starting this three and a half year timeline from the date of the vote at the GC session, he starts it on September 23. Uh, The address was on September 24. And he says in the video that three and a half years from that date in September takes you to March or April of 2019. And he says in the video that he is not time setting. Now, David Gates is a sincere man, and when he says that he's not time-setting, he honestly believes that. But that's time-setting. If you say that a Sunday law is going to happen in March or April of 2019, and he says this in October of 2018, that is time-setting. Now, I shared this at GYC um, in late December early january and so this was still future to see what would happen in march or april but i was very certain that nothing was going to happen in march or april because if you set a date for something it's not going to happen because the lord tells us not to set dates so if you wanted the lord to come or for a sunday law to come in march or april don't set a date for it but just for whatever that's worth now he teaches and you heard this mentioned last night in the evening meeting So he believes that we have been living in the judgment of the living since September of 2015, and he said that around March or April of 2019, there would be a national Sunday law and probation will close for Seventh-day Adventists. Now, let me just back up here. So now, obviously, these months came and went. We're in June of 2019, June 18 to be specific. Now, what happens here is, and I'll probably mention this a little bit later, but David Gates was connecting with another Seventh-day Adventist pastor out in California, and that Seventh-day Adventist pastor set a date for March 10 of 2019 for the Sunday Law. David Gates was saying March or April, this pastor using the same methodology, Pope coming to America and so forth, came to the date of March 10, and when March 10 came and went, he obviously had some explaining to do, this other pastor. Now, David Gates hasn't said anything publicly that I'm aware of about March or April coming and going, but this other pastor that David Gates shared links to his videos on in the video, he came out with a response after March 10 came and went, and what he said is is that probation closed for the leadership of the Seventh-day Adventist church on March 10 but that there will be a Sunday law by the close of the spring of this year, which would be June 20. And so he said on his latest video that if there isn't a Sunday law by June 21, which is the first day of summer, that he will make a public apology to the Seventh-day Adventist Church for being incorrect. Well, he's got three days, and so we'll see where we are three days from now, and if he'll make that public statement, but this is clearly time setting. Um, Now, again, the whole thing that initiated David Gates to make this video is he says that the Seventh-day Adventist church rejected the testimony of Jesus at the San Antonio General Conference session in 2015 based on a change of the wording of their statement. Now, I took the time to watch the whole video. I don't encourage you to do so, but I did so because I was making a presentation on it. Interestingly, David Gates does not show the statement for the change in wording of the Seventh-day Adventist beliefs on the writings of Ellen G. White. So he comes out in this video and he says the Adventist church has changed their beliefs, but he doesn't show how it was changed. And then based on that change, he says that we've rejected her writings and we're now living in the judgment of the living and it's leading to a Sunday law. Well, that's really the just a, a a textbook definition of what date setting and fanaticism looks like, because he's not even showing you the change in wording. So considering he is basing his belief that this helped to trigger the end of all things for Seventh-day Adventists, it's quite irresponsible to, to put out a video that 260 plus thousand people have watched, and there's no evidence for what he's talking about, other than taking his word for it. Now, he's sincere, but we're expected... To take his word for it. So, what we're going to do is we're going to see the, the prior wording and the current wording and what was changed, and if, in fact, you could make such a claim that her writings and her gift as the testimony of Jesus has been rejected by the world church body. Now, here's the 2010 statement. This was a statement for several years in our fundamental beliefs. This was in the 2010 church manual after the general conference session in Atlanta, and here's how it reads, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. This gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church and was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. As the Lord's messenger, her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth, which provide for the church comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction. They also make clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. So that's the statement, and then it was revised, and now I'm going to show you the revised statement. And here it reads, the scriptures testify that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. This gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church, and we believe it was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. Now, if I stop right there, I'm definitely having a hard time seeing where her writings have been rejected. Now, here you see the change. Um, it it says her writings speak with prophetic authority and provide comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction to the church. They also make clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. So if you do a, a quick comparison, the previous statement said her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth. Now it says her writings speak with prophetic authority. Now David Gates took objection to the change from being an authoritative source of truth to speaking with prophetic authority. But, you know, if you really want to split hairs, you can split hairs. But if we're saying that her writings speak with prophetic authority and that this gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church, I fail to see how this is a rejection of her writings. Now, you can have a debate over which statement you prefer, but this statement that's the updated statement does not constitute a rejection of her writings, neither does it constitute, then, a timeline that begins the judgment of the living leading to the close of probation for Seventh-day Adventists. That's simply speculative fanaticism. It's sensationalism. And I'm trying to be kind, but that's what it is. And it's an irresponsible way to respond to a voted statement by the world church body. So a few fact-checks. David Gates claims that the General Conference does not believe Ellen White's writings are inspired anymore, yet the statement shows that Seventh-day Adventists affirm that her writings are an identifying mark of the remnant church and that her writings speak with prophetic authority. Now, some further confusion, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, David Gates shares a link on his video to a Seventh-day Adventist, now former pastor, by the way, this pastor who was setting dates for March 10, he was fired by his conference, as he should have been. So David Gates shared a link on his video to a Seventh-day Adventist now former pastor who is reinterpreting the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335 days of Daniel 12 as literal time prophecy. So here's the irony. So ironically, David Gates is rejecting the clear testimony from Ellen White that there are no more time prophecies after 1844. So he says that the church has rejected Ellen White as the testimony of Jesus, and yet he's ignoring her counsel about no more time prophecy after 1844. So who's really rejecting the testimony of Jesus? So that's the irony, and I'm sure he doesn't intend to be rejecting her writings. He's sincere, but you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong, as many of these offshoot movements are. Now, David Gates also claimed that the compliance document that was voted at the annual council, at this last annual council, which has a series of disciplinary measures for entities of the church that are out of compliance with voted decisions of the world church, David Gates claimed that this document would allow the general conference to disfellowship local church members. Now, if you understand how the church structure worked, you would know that there's no way that could happen. And a clear reading of the document says no such thing. It's not in the document. And the General Conference doesn't even have the power to disfellowship a a local church member. So there were just some very dubious, speculative, and irresponsible claims in the video that unfortunately, because it was coming from David Gates, who is respected by many as a zealous missionary throughout the world, um, it, it was perhaps more accepted than it should have been. One of the other things that was disturbing in the video was he kept saying things such as, the Lord has shown me, and he would say that in reference to March or April of 2019, and the whole thing that he set up, and it's like he was talking as if he was a prophet. Now, he may say he's not, but who, why would you say the Lord has shown me? That's language that we would typically reserve for a prophet. Now, let's see what Ellen White says about time prophecies. So just a few statements that we're going to look at. This is Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 84, written in 1897. There will always be false and fanatical movements made by persons in the church who claim to be led of God. And let me stop right there. Guess what? I hate to break it to you, but there's always going to be fanaticism in the church. Just the way it is. There will always be false and fanatical movements made by persons in the church who claim to be led of God, those who will run before they are sent and will give day and date for the occurrence of unfulfilled prophecy. The enemy is pleased to have them do this for the success of failures and leading into false lines cause confusion and unbelief. So Satan is pleased to have people going out and setting dates. Listen, friends, I don't want to be doing something that makes Satan happy. You may say, well, I'm using the Bible and the spirit of prophecy to prove my point, but when you're doing the very thing that God has asked us not to do, which is not to set dates, the enemy is pleased by that. And we as God's last-day people should not be running ahead of the Lord. And, you know, I hear people say, oh, well, what's worse, people who believe in evolution and the LGBT movement or people who are setting dates and they're reinterpreting Daniel 12? At least they're using the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. Ellen White says that both are equally harmful to the cause of God. Another statement, this is Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 73, written in 1885. I plainly stated at the Jackson camp meeting to these fanatical parties that they were doing the work of the adversary of souls. They were in darkness. They claimed to have great light, that probation would close in October 1884. I there stated in public that the Lord had been pleased to show me that there would be no definite time in the message given of God since 1844. So notice she says, the Lord had been pleased to show me, and she said this in public that there would be no definite time in the message given of God since 1844. So what about that do you not understand? After 1844, there is no definite time in our message. Now, the pastor that David Gates was referring to with the links in his video, they were saying we can't set a date for the second coming, but we can set a date for the Sunday law and the close of probation. And yet Ellen White says... We have no definite time in our message since 1844. We don't set dates for the second coming or the close of probation or the Sunday law. There is no such thing in our message. Another statement, this is Manuscript Releases, Volume 10, page 270, written in 1888. Our position has been one of waiting and watching with no time proclamation to intervene between the close of the prophetic periods in 1844 and the time of our Lord's coming. And then, Bible commentary, volume seven, page nine seventy one. The people will not have another message upon definite time after this period of time, seen in Revelation ten four to six, reaching from eighteen forty two to eighteen forty four. There can be no definite tracing of the prophetic time. The longest reckoning reaches to the autumn of eighteen forty four. And by the way, the only way you can get to the autumn of eighteen forty four is through the twenty three hundred day prophecy, which helps us to understand what the longest time period in The Bible is, and I'll give you a hint. It's not 2520. We'll keep going here. Now, this is from Review and Herald, October 9, 1894. This is a very strong statement. Some will say, why are you picking on Seventh-day Adventist brethren who simply have an urge and a zeal to see Jesus come soon? Well, the testimony of Jesus has some very strong things to say about those who would set time. Review in Herald, October 9, 1894. This is a two-slide quote. God has not revealed to us the time when this message will close or when probation will have an end. Those things that are revealed we shall accept for ourselves and for our children, but let us not seek to know that which has been kept secret in the counsels of the Almighty. It is our duty to watch and work and wait to labor every moment for the souls of men that are ready to perish. And continuing, we are to keep walking continually in the footsteps of jesus working in his lines dispensing his gifts as good stewards of the manifold grace of god now listen to this satan will be ready to give to anyone who is not learning every day of jesus a special message of his own creating in order to make of no effect the wonderful truth for this time Satan is ready to give to anyone. It doesn't matter who you are. You could have been a powerful evangelist or preacher doing the work of the Lord for years. And you could say, how could someone who's been such a zealous missionary do the work of Satan? Well, testimony of Jesus is that Satan will be ready to give to anyone who is not learning every day of Jesus, a special message of his own creating. And when you start to set dates and then you say you're not time setting while you're time setting, That is the definition of confusion. Now, let's keep going here. Review and Herald, October 9, 1894, another two-slide statement here. Ellen White says, Letters have come to me asking if I have any special light as to the time when probation will close, and I answer that I have only this message to bear, that it is now time to work while the day lasts, For the night cometh in which no man can work. Now, just now, it is time for us to be watching, working, and waiting. The word of the Lord reveals the fact that the end of all things is at hand, and its testimony is most decided that it is necessary for every soul to have the truth planted in the heart so that it will control the life and sanctify the character. The Spirit of the Lord is working to take the truth of the inspired word and stamp it upon the soul so that professed followers of Christ will have a holy, sacred joy. That they will be able to impart to others. The opportune time for us to work is now, just now, while the day lasts. And now here's the key part there is no command for anyone to search the Scripture in order to ascertain, if possible, when probation will close. So she's not even referring to the second coming here. And these individuals who were setting a date for the close of probation said, we can find the time for the close of probation, just not the second coming. And yet here Ellen White says, there is no command for anyone to search the scripture in order to ascertain, if possible, when probation will close. God has no such message for any mortal lips. He would have no mortal tongue declare that which he has hidden in his secret counsels. So for those who claim to have fresh light, about when probation will close, they're deceived. And guess what? March 10 came and went. There was no Sunday law. Now they're saying June 21, and we're getting pretty close. All right, so let's talk briefly about this issue of the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335 days. David Gates, along with his former pastor, among others, are trying to reinterpret this 1260, the 1290, and the 1335 days of Daniel 12 as literal time prophecies. How many of you have heard people do this thing? And they make it an exciting new thing that you should learn. They acknowledge the historical fulfillment of these prophecies, but they believe there is a literal future fulfillment. And they use this statement from Ellen White, which is letter 161, July 30, 1903, which says, let us read and understand the 12th chapter of Daniel. It is a warning we shall all need to understand before the time of the end. Sure, I agree with that. Um, That doesn't mean that you reinterpret the the time prophecies after 1844, but yeah, Daniel 12 is very important for Seventh-day Adventists, especially when you look at the first four verses of that chapter. This statement is used as justification for the new understanding of futurism that is being promoted, and what they teach, and this is true, Daniel 12 and Revelation 10 are closely linked. We see some connections between Daniel 12, where Christ swears by himself, and he does so in Daniel 12 and in Revelation chapter 10. So there's a connection between the second advent movement being raised up in Revelation 10 and uh, the time prophecies in Daniel 12. Now, in Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, when you come to the end of the chapter, after you see Christ raising up the second advent movement and then the second advent movement going through the great disappointment where they eat the the scroll and it's sweet in the mouth and bitter in the belly, then the message is to the second Advent movement, thou must prophesy again. Now, those who are promoting this dual fulfillment of prophecy say that prophesying again means that the prophecies of Daniel 12 have a dual application because of the phrase, thou must prophesy again. That is not what that phrase means. What that phrase means is that there must be a wider proclamation of now what we would call the three angels' messages because the the second Advent movement had proclaimed the first and the second angels' messages leading up until October 22, 1844, but the third angel's message could not be proclaimed until Christ entered into the most holy place on October 22. So when the angel says, Thou must prophesy again, the reason he says that is because the third angel's message has not yet been proclaimed by the Advent movement. It's not because there's going to be a reapplication of the time prophecies. That should be pretty obvious if you study Daniel and Revelation. Now, if you look at what Ellen White says about the 1335 days, she doesn't say a whole lot, but she has this one statement in Manuscript Releases, Volume 5, page 203, and I'm just going to read the second paragraph in the interest of time. She says, we told him, Brother H., of some of his errors in the past, that the 1335 days were ended, and numerous other errors of his. So this was a gentleman who was promoting the idea that the 1335 days was a prophecy in the future, and she says, no, those days are ended. Let's look at the true meaning of Daniel chapter 12 as we move along here. You know, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, is a continuation of the prophecy of Daniel 10 and 11. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, we read, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was, since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And it goes on through verse 4 as a direct continuation of what we saw, basically starting in Daniel 11, verse 1, with the Medo-Persian Empire, all the way through, to the time when probation closes, Michael stands up, there's Jacob's time of trouble, God's people are delivered. And then we see that the book of Daniel will be sealed and closed up until the time of the end. Then we have verses 5 through 13, and verses 5 through 13 are an explanation of the key points of the vision, where Daniel is given a further understanding of what some of the key points of the vision of Daniel 11 are about. This is identical to the pattern of Daniel 2, 7, and 8, where you have the initial vision, and then an explanation follows after the first portion, or after the vision is, is given. And so it would make sense that the last vision would follow the same pattern. So Daniel 12, verses 5 through 13, does not stand by itself. It's a further explanation of Daniel 11. So Daniel 12.1 identifies the close of probation when Michael stands up. It describes the deliverance of God's people. It describes the special resurrection. It describes the wise who have given the loud cry and who shine as the brightness of the firmament. It shows that the understanding of the prophecy is sealed until the time of the end. And then we have this further explanation. Then in verse 7, Christ swears by himself that it will take 1260 years to scatter God's people until 1798. And then verses 8 through 10 reveal that after 1798, the wise will be purified and made to understand the prophecy, and the wicked will not understand. Now one thing that's worth mentioning here, just for you to think about, have any of you ever wondered why God's people were scattered in the wilderness for 1,260 years? Three and a half prophetic years. You know, it's an interesting analogy. So, Christ had three and a half literal years, and at the end of the three and a half literal years, he is crucified on the cross. He dies. He suffers, if you will, a deadly wound. But on the cross, he is the perfect manifestation of what God's government and character are all about. Well, then, Satan gets his turn during the 1,260 years because Scripture tells us in Revelation that the dragon gives his power, seat, and authority to the beast. And so he doesn't get three and a half literal years, he gets three and a half prophetic years. And at the end of the three and a half prophetic years, he suffers a deadly wound. But at the end of the three and a half prophetic years, we have this special event described as the French Revolution in Revelation 11, where we see total anarchy, chaos, the guillotines, people turning each other in. Nobody could trust anybody. They worship the goddess of reason God has done away with. And If you understand what's happening here, at the end of the 1260 years during the French Revolution, this is a picture of what heaven would have become if Satan had defeated Christ in heaven. So, the 1260 years culminating in the French Revolution are a picture of of what the principles of Satan's government are truly about. So then God could be vindicated to begin a judgment in heaven after the 1260 years because he's shown on earth what his government is like, but then Satan demonstrates what his government is like for three and a half prophetic years after Christ's death on the cross. And then when the judgment begins, God can then turn around and say, now it's my turn. Now I'm going to show what my government is like through the lives of my people. And when that Demonstration is accomplished, I'll be vindicated to finish the judgment. So, just something to think about. So, we keep going. Verse 11 connects to Daniel 11:31, when the daily is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up. That's 508. So, the 1290 and 1335 extend from 508 to 1798 and 508 to 1843, respectively. And this blessing that comes to those who come to the end of the 1335 days means that those who are alive during the time of the Millerite movement, of the Second Advent movement, will receive a special blessing. So what's the significance of 1798 and 1843? 1798 is the beginning of the time of the end until the second coming of Jesus. 1843 is the year the Millerites originally believed that Jesus would come, there is a special blessing for those who were alive at that time. So God wants us to understand that Daniel and Revelation are pointing to 1798 and 1843-44 as the focal points of prophetic history. Now, just in case you have counted, we find at least nine times, and you see the verses on the screen, that prophecy points us to 1798. That's important. That's something that we as Seventh-day Adventists need to understand. And then I've read the statement already about the 1,335 days that were ended. Now, here's their argument for the days in Daniel 12, verses 11 and 12 being literal. They say that the Hebrew word for days in Daniel 12, verses 11 and 12, is different than the times found in Daniel 7, 25, in Daniel 12, verse 7, and for the evenings and mornings in Daniel 8, 14. Now that's true, but they also say it's the same word throughout the Old Testament to describe literal days. That's also true. So thus they believe that the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335 days must also represent literal time in addition to prophetic time. However, the Hebrew word for days in Daniel 12 is the same as found in Numbers 1434 and Ezekiel 4-6, which are the two key verses from the Old Testament that we use to prove the day-for-year principle. So just because the word for days in Daniel 12 is the same as the word for literal days throughout the Old Testament, well, guess what? So, are the, so is the, the word in Numbers 14.34 and Ezekiel 4.6, and we use that, and Ellen White verifies that as our basis for the day year principle. And other, furthermore, the word for days in the Greek in Revelation 11.2 and 12.6 is the same word used to describe literal days in the New Testament, but we understand those to be prophetic days, not literal days. And the word for months in Revelation 11 verse 3 and 135 is also used to describe literal months in the New Testament. Yet we use that as prophetic time in those passages as well. So Ellen White makes it very clear there's no more prophetic time after 1844. Those who are trying to make the 1260, the 1290 and the 1335 literal time prophecies are going against her clear counsel. So that, that's my point on that section. We're going to move on now to the issue of Jeff Pippinger and the 2520. Jeff Pippinger is a leader of a ministry in Arkansas known as Future for America, and now he's actually the leader of a church called Truth Triumphant or Church or yeah, Church Triumphant. And he and others have been proclaiming a 2520 so-called prophecy for several years. How many of you have been exposed to Jeff Pippender? Several of you. And again, as th- this is kind of similar to the anti-Trinitarian movement from my experience. What I talked about with David Gates, that's maybe a little bit different. It's um, someone out there trying to set dates for the close of probation. The dates come and go, and then they start doing other things. But the anti-Trinitarian movement is more of a of a movement that has this core belief that they stick to and they come into the churches and try to infiltrate and to get others to buy into it. Same thing with Jeff Pippinger and his movement. They have this core belief system 2520, among other things, and then they try to come into the churches, infiltrate, and get people to buy into it because they will find that many of the churches are sleeping spiritually. And when they come in with the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, it will wake up a few people to say, oh yeah, I need to study the Bible. I need to study the spirit of prophecy. And these people are doing it. They're on fire for the Lord. I'm going to follow what they're saying. That's the method that they're using. Now, here's something that's worth mentioning that I think I have forgotten to mention so far in my presentations, but I'm going to mention it now. When you deal with people who have fallen into the anti-Trinitarian camp or people who get into this Pippinger movement, I was talking to one of my friends in ministry, you, I'm sure most of you know I'm Ed Reed, Elder Ed Reed, and he had had to deal with this 2520 movement, and this is what he said about it. He said, talking to people in this movement is like trying to talk to a teenager who's fallen in love with the wrong person. You can't reason with a teenager in, wrong, in love with the wrong person, and it's very difficult to reason with a seventh-day Adventist who has fallen into fanaticism. It's just very difficult. And so they've been proclaiming this so-called prophecy for several years. Well, what's the the issue with this? Here's kind of where they go with this, and I'm just giving you kind of a big picture overview of what they're saying. So they mentioned that the, and this is true, the Millerites preached a 2520 prophecy based on Leviticus 26, and it was one of several ways that they pointed to 1843, um, and they used the timeline of 677 B.C. to 1843 A.D. And if you can see on the screen... In the upper right-hand corner of the 1843 chart, the 2520 is on that chart. That is true. It is a historical fact. So now Pippinger, though, comes along and updates this 2520 so-called prophecy, and he adds what Hiram Edson had proposed after um, the the disappointment. Hiram Edson came up with the idea that the tr- he, Hiram Edson thought that William Miller was wrong, and Hiram Edson believed that the 2520 should have gone from 723 B.C. to 1798 A.D. Now, why they start with those dates? 677 B.C. is when Manasseh was taken captive by the Assyrian king, and um, 723 is when the Northern Kingdom, the Ten Tribes, were taken captive forever. So that's the the rationale behind those starting points. Although Manasseh came back after 677, and it wasn't until 605 when Babylon conquered Jerusalem that the Jews went into captivity. So Starting something at 677 is a bit arbitrary, admittedly. So anyway, what Pippinger does is he combines what William Miller taught with what Hiram Edson taught, and he has two lines of prophecy of 2521, that goes from 723 B.C. to 1798, and one that goes from 677 B.C. to 1844. And so I've mentioned that. And so Pippinger and associates begin teaching that this is a testing truth for modern Adventism. Now, there's a number of things that they say out there, but one of the things that they do that's really kind of strange is they take the Bible verse that talks about line upon line, and rather than using that to say that that means line upon line through Scripture, they say that that also refers to a prophetic line stretched, for example, from 723 B.C. to 1798 or 677 B.C. to 1844. So you have line upon line. And then they have further lines, and the last line that they have is a line that began with 9-11 that goes until the second coming of Jesus, and they say that they are on that last prophetic line, and you have to be a believer in that last prophetic line to be saved. And they say, you must accept this truth to receive the latter rain and to be sealed. Um, they say, um, now here's, here's some issues as to why this is not true Eventually, Uriah Smith came along, James White came along and said, this is not a time prophecy. The word for times in Leviticus 26 is different than the word for times in the book of Daniel. It means intensity rather than duration. It's found four times in Leviticus 26 and describes what will happen to Israel if they are disobedient. Now, the the Pippinger movement places a, a lot of stock in the 1843 chart. Ellen White says this of the 1843 chart in Early Writing 74, I have seen that the 1843 chart was directed by the hand of the Lord and sh- that it should not be altered, that the figures were as he wanted them, that his hand was over and hit a mistake in some of the figures so that none could see it until his hand was removed. So they really go to town with this idea that the 1843 chart should not be altered and the 2520 was on it. However, Ellen White says also in Spalding and McGann Collection, page 1, paragraph 3, She says, I saw that the truth should be made plain upon tables, that the earth and the fullness thereof is the Lord's, and that necessary means should not be spared to make it plain. I saw that the old chart was directed by the Lord, and that not a figure of it should be altered except by inspiration. So she does say that if you find something in conflict with inspiration, it can be altered, and here's where we have inspiration to help us out. Great Controversy, page 351. Ellen White says, "...the experience of the disciples who preached the gospel of the kingdom at the first advent of Christ had its counterpart in the experience of those who proclaimed the message of his second advent." As the disciples went out preaching, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So Miller and his associates proclaimed that the longest and last prophetic period brought to view in the Bible was about to expire, that the judgment was at hand, and the everlasting kingdom was to be ushered in. Now, Pippinger and friends would say, see, she's referring to the 2520 here. But she doesn't name it. And then she goes on to say what she's talking about in the next paragraph. The preaching of the disciples in regard to time was based on the 70 weeks of Daniel 9. The message given by Miller and his associates announced the termination of the 2,300 days of Daniel eight fourteen, of which the 70 weeks form a part. The preaching of each was, a, was based upon the fulfillment of a different portion of the same great prophetic period. So Ellen White says, Miller and his associates proclaimed the longest and last prophetic period. Next sentence or two, she says, It was the announcement of the termination of the 2300 days. Now, context is key. If Ellen White wanted you to believe that the longest and last prophetic period proclaimed by Miller was the 2520, she would have said so, especially if it was going to be a testing truth. But she didn't say that. She said it was the 2300 days. Going on, volume 7 of Bible Commentary 971. I read the statement earlier. Last sentence says, the longest reckoning of prophecy reaches to the autumn of 1844. And the 2300-day prophecy is how we get to the autumn of 1844 based on our understanding of the antitypical Day of Atonement being on October 22. 2520 cannot get you to October. So the Jeff Pippinger deception, Jeff Pippinger has been disfellowshipped from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. His deception has deepened as time has gone on. He now claims to be a modern prophet to the Seventh-day Adventist movement, similar to Victor Hutu's claim from the Shepherd's Rod. He has now formed a new church called the Church Triumphant. I was talking to one of my friends recently who had been associated with Pippinger for a while and then moved away from Pippinger after a number of errors Pippinger started teaching, including that they were not to have a message for non-Adventists, that it was only for Adventists, and there are apparently 300 baptized members of this church triumphant. Pippinger refers to this as Gideon and his 300. So it's a bit of a problem. And he is teaching that probation will close for Seventh-day Adventists on November 9, 2019. So it's 11-9 instead of 9-11. So um, there's no inspired evidence as to why we would have closer probation on November 9. I saw a video recently where he and one of his key um, associates who's teaching this message with him were, were giving a message to their followers of what they should do if November 9 doesn't work out and how they should respond to it. Well, if you're already giving a message about what to do if it doesn't work out, that's kind of a bad sign. So, that's, we're going to move on from Pippinger. There's the feast-keeping deception. Some Seventh-day Adventists teach that the feast Sabbaths are binding for us to keep as much as the Seventh-day Sabbath. They teach that in order to be sealed, they teach we must keep the feast. You know, these things seem to come in waves right now. The anti-Trinitarian movement seems to be the big thing. I suspect that if time should last, the feast-keeping thing may come back around. Here's one of their favorite statements, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 540. At these yearly assemblies, the hearts of old and young would be encouraged in the service of God, while the association of the people from the different quarters of the land would strengthen the ties that bound them to God and to one another. Well would it be for the people of God at the present time to have a Feast of Tabernacles, a joyous commemoration of the blessings of God to them. Now Ellen White is making reference to the feasts that the Jews would go to Jerusalem to attend, including the Feast of Tabernacles, and she said... These are kind of like the camp meetings we would have today, and it would be well for us to have something like that now. But they're saying, no, we should be keeping a feast of tabernacles. Now, if you turn your Bibles to Colossians 2, you have this famous passage where it says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, and so forth. Ellen White refers to this passage in Manuscript 43, 1887, and says the laws of sacrificial offerings were typical and were in until type should reach its antitype in the greater and holy perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. These sacrifices and services of the temple were to cease with the perfect offering of Christ himself as the lamb without blemish. These sacrifices were abolished at the cross. This handwriting of ordinances our Lord did blot out and take away and nail to his cross. So if you want to know what was blotted out at the cross in Colossians 2, it's the ceremonial law. And then specifically referring to the Passover I'm just going to go down towards the end where it says as he ate the Passover with his disciples this is the desire of ages 652 as he ate the Passover with his disciples he instituted in its place the service that was to be the memorial of his great sacrifice that's the foot washing service the national festival of the Jews was to pass away forever the service which Christ established was to be observed by his followers in all lands and through all ages. So communion, foot washing, the eating of unleavened bread, that's the communion service that we partake in now. That's not feast keeping. That's remembering Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. The national festival of the Jews, namely the Passover, was to pass away forever because the ceremonial law was done away with on the cross. So feast keeping, don't get into that. That's not our message. That's not the message for this time. Just briefly, we're going to talk about the issue of the trumpets. Some are trying to make the trumpets part of the seven last plagues and say they have a future fulfillment. When we look at the historical fulfillment of the trumpets, Revelation 8, verses 7 through 13, describe the first four trumpets, which are judgments on Western Rome, and they culminate with the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 AD. Revelation 9 describes the fifth and the sixth trumpets, which are judgments on the eastern... Roman Empire carried out by the Ottoman Turks. And in the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets, we have the first, second, and third woes. These three woes correlate with the last three trumpets. The fifth trumpet was from July 27, 1299 to 1449, and the sixth trumpet went from July 27, 1449 to August 11, 1840 in harmony with the time prophecy of Revelation 9:15 of one hour, one day, one month, and one year, which is 391 years and 15 days. Ellen White makes reference to this prophecy that Josiah Litch came to an understanding of shortly before its fulfillment. She comments on it in Great Controversy 334. In the year 1840, another remarkable fulfillment of prophecy excited widespread interest. Two years before, Josiah Litch, one of the leading ministers preaching the Second Advent, published an exposition of Revelation 9 predicting the fall of the Ottoman Empire. According to his calculations, this power was to be overthrown in, quote, A.D. 1840, sometime in the month of August, end quote. And only a few days previous to its accomplishment, he wrote, quote, allowing the first period 150 years to have been exactly fulfilled before Diakosi's ascended the throne by permission of the Turks, and that the 391 years, 15 days commenced at the close of the first period, it will end on the 11th of August, 1840, when the Ottoman power in Constantinople may be expected to be broken, and this, I believe, will be found to be the case. End quote. Now, notice what she says At the very time specified, Turkey, through her ambassadors, accepted the protection of the allied powers of Europe and thus placed herself under the control of Christian nations, the event exactly fulfilled the prediction. Now, there are some today who say, oh, Josiah Litch gave up his belief in that, so we don't need to believe it either. And Ellen White was just commenting on what happened historically, but the 391 years and 15 days isn't something for us to follow. And yet... Josiah Litch not only gave up his belief on August 11, 1840, he also gave up his belief in the 2300 days in October 22, 1844. And we still believe in that. And Ellen White is verifying this. She says that it's a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy. And she says that, that the event exactly fulfilled the prediction. The seventh trumpet sounds in Revelation 11, 15 through 19. It commences in 1844 with a judgment. You see in verse 19 of Revelation 11 where it says the temple of God was open in heaven and there was seen in this temple the ark of his testament. This culminates with the judgment on papal Rome with the outpouring of the seven last plagues. So the trumpets, first four trumpets, judgments on western Rome, fifth and sixth trumpets are a judgment on eastern Rome, the seventh judgment is a judgment on papal Rome. Now in the last few minutes I'm going to talk briefly about Daniel 11 in the Middle East. There are a variety of views on this, and let me hasten to add that the the, the difference in views here, obviously I have a position. Those who see it differently than me, I would not in any way or shape place in the same category as anti-Trinitarians or feast keepers or the 2520 movement or date setting or anything of that nature. You can be a good Seventh-day Adventist, whatever your position of Daniel 11 is. So let me make that clear. I don't want anyone to come out if you're thinking that I'm calling someone who has a different view on Daniel 11, a heretic. Is that clear? So just so we're clear on that. But I do believe that there is a helpful way to look at Daniel 11 that helps us to understand things based on the big picture of the book of Daniel 11. And if you look at Daniel and Revelation, really the only time we see Islam as a major player is in the fifth and sixth trumpets, which are the first and the second woes. Some have tried to make the third woe, about Islam as well, which Jeff Pippinger does, others have done that as well, yet when you look at the third woe, the third woe culminates with the outpouring of the seven last plagues on spiritual Rome, and that really doesn't have anything to do with Islam. Furthermore, in the book of Revelation, again, or in, yeah, Revelation is is what is showing us Islam, but other than that, we don't see Islam as a major player in end-time prophecy. Um, Now, there are, Uh, some different views. I'm going to just break down briefly what is said. Some are still holding on to the idea of Uriah Smith's viewpoint that Turkey is the king of the north, Islamic Turkey is the king of the north, and Egypt is the king of the south, and there's a literal conflict in the Middle East at the end that will then lead Michael to stand up and probation to close. Others are promoting the idea that the papacy is the king of the north at the end of Daniel 11, but Islam is the king of the south, and when Islam attacks Christianity, this will lead to the final events of Bible prophecy. Um, My position happens to be that the papacy is the king of the north at the end of Daniel 11. It receives a deadly wound in verse 40 by atheistic France, who pushes at him, and then the papacy has a comeback. He enters into the glorious land, which is the territory of the Christian church, seemingly conquers the whole world, and he plants the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, the glorious holy mountain representing God's end time and remnant people, the 144,000, and the sea representing the people of the world who've received the mark of the beast. And based on that attack of God's people, Michael then stands up to deliver his people, everyone whose name is found written in the book. Now, let me just give you a big picture overview of why I see that as well. When you look at Daniel, and I think as Seventh-day Adventist, we understand the first three prophetic chapters pretty clearly of the sequence of the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Medo- or, and then Babylon is missing in the last few prophecies. But all of these four major prophecies lead to a climactic, apocalyptic event. In Daniel chapter 2, it's the second coming of Jesus when the stone strikes the image. In Daniel chapter 7, it's the beginning of the judgment in heaven where thrones are cast down, the ancient of days did sit. Daniel chapter 8, it's the cleansing of the sanctuary, and in Daniel chapter 11 and 12, it's Michael standing up in probation closing. Now, here's what you see when you look at that outline from the book of Daniel in a big picture perspective. Daniel 2 shows us that Jesus is coming again, but Daniel 7 shows us that in order for Jesus to come again, there must be a judgment in heaven first, which, based on our understanding of Daniel 8.14, begins in 1844. And so in order for the judgment in heaven to be finished, the sanctuary in heaven must be cleansed. And Daniel 11 shows us that when the sanctuary in heaven is cleansed, Michael stands up and probation is closed. And so the focal point of prophetic history in the book of Daniel really is between 1844 and the close of probation, second coming, and that's the period of time that we are living in. So when I look at the end of Daniel 11, what I would expect to see is that the end of Daniel 11 is describing the events that take place that correspond to how God's people are cleansed from sin so that the sanctuary in heaven above can be cleansed from sin. Because Ellen White says on Maranatha, page 249, that there must be a purifying, of the hearts of God's people here upon earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. So when I see the king of the north entering into the glorious land, trying to surround the glorious holy mountain, that's the final conflict in earth's history where God's people go through the final purification to be a demonstration that when Michael stands up and they will pass through the great time of Jacob's t- trouble, they will be a demonstration that God has cleansed his sanctuary in heaven by cleansing his people from sin, by writing his law into their hearts and minds. That's why I don't believe that the end of Daniel 11 is about a Middle East regional conflict. I believe that the end of Daniel 11 is describing what happens with respect to the antagonistic power towards God's people, which is the papacy, who the dragon gave his power, seat, and authority to, and then he went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So at the end of the world, the target of the papacy, the king of the north, who receives his power, seat, and authority from Satan, his target is God's people. And so we're not waiting for Islam to move, or for Turkey to do something. We're not even really waiting for the Pope to make his move. We're waiting for God's people to be ready so that when the papacy makes its final onslaught with a Sunday law and surrounds God's people with the death decree, when Michael stands up, he will have a people that he can stand up to deliver. That's what I see happening in the book of Daniel. So why don't we close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you that you have given us the more sure word of prophecy. May we follow that sure word as a light that shines in a dark place. May we stay connected to Jesus. May we not be confused by date setting and false fanatical movements. May we follow you and be found faithful when you come. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.